Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did, and how. Episode 213. I am your humble host, Thomas Rosland Weiberg Thun, and tonight we continue the tale of the Hillside Stranglers, Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono. We left off last episode with the tale of Buono's childhood, youth and young adulthood. Tonight, we continue the background story of our killer duo. Enjoy. This episode, like all other sagas told by me, would not be possible without my loyal Patreonies. They are... Lisbeth, Russell, Lisa, Kathy, James, Cody, Kylie, Robert, Val, Madeline, Craig, Emily, the Duggletons, Jonathan, Jennifer, Lunavar, Roy, Cheryl, Richard, Brad, Laurie, Manuel, Haley, James, and Jeff. You are truly the backbone of the Serial Killer podcast, and without you, there would be no show. Thank you. I am forever grateful for my elite TSK Producers Club, and I want to show you that your patronage is not given in vain. All TSK episodes will be available 100% ad-free to my TSK Producers Club on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast. No generic ads, no ad reads, no jingles. I promise. And of course, if you wish to donate $15 a month, that's only seven fifty per episode, you are more than welcome to join the ranks of the TSK Producers Club too. So don't miss out 
and join now. In 1971, Nanette had finally worked up the courage to leave Buono. She decided that she would rather risk death than remain with Buono, and she suspected or hoped that his threats were empty. Her daughter Annette, by then fourteen, had begun complaining that Buono was fondling her too intensely. And making obscene suggestions to her, and Nanette feared that Bono had achieved more than that with the girl. Bono had even said of the child, and I quote, that she needs breaking in. End quote. Without telling him, one day Nanette put herself and the four children on the plane to Florida and never came back. A year later, Bono married a girl named Deborah Taylor at the Silver Bell Wedding Chapel in Las Vegas. But this was a mere lark. They never lived together, and they never bothered to get divorced. Bono was learning not to take women too seriously. He changed apartments often, moving from Glendale over to the Oakwood Apartments above Forest Lawn Drive, then back to Glendale. And for a time, he shared a place in the Silver Lake district, known locally as the Swish Alps, with Ralph Harper. Harper was an aspiring actor who joined Bono in auto theft only when between roles. He appeared in productions of Hello, Dolly and Gailey, but lost out to Archie Moore, the light heavyweight champ for the part of Nigger Jim. In the movie of Huckleberry Finn, Harper's stage name was Artie Ford, and he was proud to be buddies with Jay Silverheels, who had played Tonto in the Lone Ranger television series. Through Artie Ford, Bono met a lot of Hollywood people and began building his reputation as one of the few auto upholsterers who could work with classic. And antique cars. He did not yet have his own shop, but it was during this period that he fixed up a sports car belonging to Frank Sinatra and a limousine that was said to be Joe Bonanno's. Bono had a fine Italian hand with cars. Life in the Swiss Alps suited Bono for a time, but Artie Ford found him a difficult apartment mate. He was obsessively neat. Ford thought he would complain when anything, even a telephone receiver, was not put back properly, and he was constantly dusting and cleaning. And he had some peculiar habits. Their apartment overlooked a high school, and sometimes Artie Ford would catch Bono looking through binoculars at the students while playing with himself. 
Artie thought this was normal enough, but he did not know what to think of Bono's boast that he had banged his stepdaughter, Annette Campino, who he said was just the right age, because young girls, and here I quote, pussies smell real good, like cheese. Bono also claimed with pride that he had turned Annette over to his sons, so that they could have a go at her, and that they had. Everyone had banged Annette, Bono said. But when Bono told Artie that he was so angry with Candy that he had snuck into her house and turned the gas on when she was out, hoping that she would light a cigarette when she got home and blow herself up, Artie was alarmed. But Bono did not actually act on his alarming boasts, and the two remained friends. Eventually, Bono moved out. In 1975, Bono finally got what he had been thinking about for some time, his own shop, when he found the place at 703 East Colorado Street. Now that he had resolved his financial responsibilities to his wives and children, he had been able to save enough money for a down payment on the property, and he was handy enough to do most of the painting and plumbing and carpeting himself. By the middle of that year, he was moved in and open for business, and he began living the kind of life that he knew was right for him. A bachelor's life filled with women, who could be dismissed when they had fulfilled their function, and an independent businessman's life with no one to call boss. Now he could set his own hours, and when an opportunity presented itself, he could seize it. He worked alone. When he needed someone to clean up or run an errand, he hired Frankie Anderson, a local kid whose nickname was Goofy. Bono had no use for an employee with an inquiring mind. For Bono, the setup on Colorado was perfect. With his shop behind his house, he hardly needed a car, and when he did need one, he would drive one of his customers' vehicles. The location between the car wash and the glass shop gave his business exposure during the day and gave him privacy at night. The metal awning he put up between the shop and his house shielded his activities from the view from the Orange Grove apartments behind. It took him no time at all to establish himself and settle into his diurnal nocturnal routine and its variations. Soon, Angelo was known throughout the neighborhood as an excellent upholsterer and a stud. The girls came around so often and in such numbers that Bono did not get a great deal of work done. You can't fuck that much and become a millionaire, as someone said, but the situation suited Angelo Bono just fine. He would shut up the girls everywhere he found them, in restaurants, on the street, in local businesses, and he liked them young. The younger, the better. Kenneth Alessio Bianchi was born on the 22nd of May 1951, the child of a Rochester prostitute. 
He never met his mother, but knew vaguely who she was. A woman whom he associated with bars and working-class nightclubs. She gave him up at birth, and at the age of three months, he was adopted from a foster home by Jenny Buono's sister, Frances Schioleone Bianchi, and her husband, a foundry worker fond of gambling, especially horse races. The Bianchis were no luckier at picking a child than at the ponies. Kenny appeared to have arisen from the cradle as a boy who never told the truth about anything. By the time he could talk, Frances knew she was coping with a compulsive liar, and his childhood unfolded as one of idleness and shirking of responsibilities. When he was five and a half, Frances became worried by his frequent lapses into trance-like states of daydreaming. She knew that this would not do when he went to school and she consulted a physician. The doctor, hearing that little Kenny's eyeballs would roll back into his head during these trances, reached a diagnosis of petite mal seizures. But they were apparently nothing to worry about. He would grow out of them. By the age of eleven, Kenny's inattention to schoolwork and his angry outbursts at home had become major worries to his adoptive mother, who, as a first-generation Italian-American, wondered whether her boy had been struck by the evil eye. His IQ tested out at 116, considered bright normal, but his laziness affected his attention to the tests. His teachers said that he was working at well below his capacity. His grades ranged from average to below average. He had verbal and artistic abilities, but even in his best subjects, his performance was erratic, and whenever he could get away with it, he would plead some illness to avoid going to school. Francis' anger at his laziness provoked temper tantrums. She took him to a clinic where a psychologist prescribed an extensive course of therapy, finding Kenny a hostile child overly dependent on his mother, and suggested counselling for the mother as well. Frances declined. She hoped that Kenny would find himself. Maybe religion would take hold. And so he spent six years at Holy Family Elementary School where even the minimal tuition was a sacrifice for the Bianchis. Although he learned to read and write with superior facility, showing particular adeptness at what would now be termed creative writing, daily indoctrination in the precepts of Christianity and the Roman Catholic Church failed in their intended effect. He took communion and made his confession weekly, was taught about sin, its occasions, and its consequences. He was told about four sins, crying to heaven for vengeance. Willful murder, the sin of Sodom, oppression of the poor, and defrauding laborers of their wages. A person committing any of these would have to make a perfect act of contrition 
to avoid eternal damnation. None of this made any serious impression on Bianchi. He heard the words, but they were mere words to him, of no obvious and immediate use, and in language, as in life, he did not separate the wheat from the chaff. In Christian terms, he remained unregenerate, a soul lost to God, rudderless on the voyage of life, a creature who caused weeping in heaven. In secular terms, he was the sort of child any experienced teacher would see was headed for trouble. But no one could have foreseen how much trouble he would be in and how much misery he would cause. When he was thirteen, his adoptive father died, and Frances went to work to support herself and her son. At Gates Chili High School, Kenny dated frequently, approaching all the girls as he did Janice Duchong with Prince Valiant Courtliness. Considering the period in American life, 1966-70, to 70, he was remarkably clean-cut in high school avoiding long hair and sloppy clothing, giving every appearance of a boy respectful, even emulative, of his elders. He joined a motorcycle club, but they were no hell's angels. He had his right arm tattooed with the image of a motorcycle and the letters Satan's Own MC, although this he quickly regretted too. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener, and as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations, but never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serial killer today 
to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash serial killer. At 18, he married Brenda Beck, whom he had known since childhood. The marriage lasted only a few months, soured in part by his belief that Brenda had been intimate before the union with another young man. Her being a nurse also made him nervous, for he thought nursing an occupation dangerous for a married woman, because it provided too many opportunities for illicit relationships and even encouraged them. Bianchi set high standards for his women, which they repeatedly failed to meet. His Catholic education served him here in a twisted way. He was able to confuse ordinary women with the Virgin Mary, and could be moved to bitter disappointment, even anger and fury at their human frailties. Denying female sexuality even as he was attracted to it, he objected to V-neck sweaters and tight jeans, and asked of women absolute fidelity in return for his outwardly absolute devotion. Yet he always dated several girls at once and did not require of himself comparable standards of purity. With Catholicism, as with other systems or bodies of belief, he was self-pleasingly selective. After his divorce, which he liked to term an annulment, he went on as before, wounded but persistent. He proposed to another girl, Susan Moore, but she told him that she could not consider him seriously until he learned to stay out of trouble and hold on to a job. Neither was Susan Moore happy about Bianchi's chronic lying and his skill at it. She suspected that he was simultaneously seeing another woman, Donna Duranzo, and herself, although he assured Susan that his only interest in Donna was concern for her two children, especially her little boy, for whom he professed acute fondness. The poor little kid, Bianchi would say. He needs a father. I know how he feels. My daddy died when I was thirteen, you know, and I never knew my real father. But twice Susan caught Kenny and Donna alone together, once in her apartment and once in his. His demands for both women's fidelity in the face of his duplicity created some heated confrontations. One night, on the outs with Donna, he came to her apartment and she refused to open the door to him. He shouted at her in the hallway, then went outside to peer at her through a window. He demanded that she open the window and speak to him, and when she turned her back, he smashed the glass and started to climb into the apartment. Donna fled out the front door and called the police, but she dropped charges when, at the police station, Bianchi seemed so contrite, so pitiful and polite, assuring everyone that he had not meant to break the window, only to open it, referring to the incident tenderly as a lover's quarrel. Bianchi announced his intention of becoming a policeman, as a start, he said, toward achieving some position of authority in life, 
and to satisfy his urge to help people. To this end, he enrolled at Monroe Community College, taking courses in police science and psychology. The first subject fit his vocational goals. The psychology courses fed his one consuming interest, himself. Psychology also attracted him as an attitude to life more appealing than the harsh insistence of Roman Catholicism on personal responsibility for one's actions. He found in modern psychology an agreeable tendency to see man as victim of impersonal forces which could be explained but not really controlled. Man as acted on rather than acting. But he attended classes only sporadically, and, true to form, took advantage of the school's medical facilities, complaining of migraine, headaches, and other afflictions. When he did apply for a job with the sheriff's department, he was rejected, but he regarded this as a momentary setback, blaming the nature of the test. Undiscouraged, he landed a job as the next best thing to a policeman, a security guard, a position that had the advantage of requiring no rigorous course of study. Another advantage of being a security guard was the excellent opportunity it afforded him to take what he felt belonged to him, the merchandise. Bianchi was naturally light-fingered, he stole clothing and jewellery, showering girlfriends with looted trinkets, but his larceny, never proved but often suspected, forced him to change jobs often, an imposition he resented. His selective readings in psychology helped him to cope with dismissal, however, providing him with explanations for his acts and failures. He had his needs. The urge to steal he compared to the urge to urinate, a build-up of forces which required release. If his employers fired him for theft, they had, in his view, suffered a failure to understand his needs. For a time he also worked as an ambulance attendant, gaining early experience with dead bodies, saying that the job met his need to help people. But hours proved inconvenient. He was going nowhere, and by 1973 the idea of California had begun to lure him. At that time he was working as a security guard at J.B. Hunter's department store and was pursuing Susan Moore, who also worked at Hunter's. She saw that he stole. When he would present her with costume jewellery, she would remonstrate with him and tell him that she even knew which counter in the store it had come from. Yet she felt for him. She could see how bright and animated by dreams he was. Someone like Bianchi should not waste away his talents in an inferior position. He proposed marriage to her, but she resisted, telling him that he had to find himself, show that he was on track toward a steady life, demonstrate the reliability of a family man. Bianchi knew 
that he was in a rut. His thoughts radiated elsewhere, away from Rochester, away from his mother. He imagined other worlds, New York City, Hollywood. Finally, at the start of the new year in 1976, he made his move. He would go to California in search of a new start, a better life. Through his mother and aunt Jenny, he made contact with cousin Angelo Buono, who agreed to take him in temporarily. In July, Bianchi found his own apartment at 809 East Garfield Avenue in Glendale, a convenient six blocks from Buono's, in a one-story U-shaped building resembling the California auto courts of days gone by, complete with palm trees. During the next year, Bianchi and Buono would grow ever closer, and soon did almost everything together, especially when it came to women. They both had several girl friends at the same time, whom they lied and manipulated to their heart's content. The girls protested. They would sometimes beat them, and almost always dump them, before moving on to a new girl. They were also avid users of prostitutes. When the girls in their life did not live up to their standards or did not act the way they wanted, they went out and picked up prostitutes, who would act just the way they instructed. Buono had a particular love for anal sex, and it annoyed him that almost all his girlfriends refused to be anally penetrated. But for a little extra cash, prostitutes would almost always happily offer up their backsides. One such prostitute was a black woman named Yolanda Washington. She never did anything to annoy Bono and Bianchi, but one of their girlfriends had annoyed them. Bianchi wanted to kill the girl, but Bono said that this was a bad idea as they would quickly be considered suspects. Instead, Buono suggested they get revenge on women in general by killing the, and here I quote, nigger whore they had found the other day. They drove and picked up Yolanda, and while driving, Bianchi attacked her and put her in handcuffs. Then he raped her, before starting to strangle her to death. He tried pulling back on her throat with his forearm first, then used the rag Bono handed him. Even though handcuffed, she managed to kick Bono in the head, so he held down her legs, draped over the back of the front seat, with his free hand, until Bianchi had finished the job. When she was limp, Bianchi surreptitiously removed the large turquoise ring from her left hand, and slipped it into his pocket. He found it would make a nice present for his girlfriend. Then Buono drove to a spot on Forest Lawn Drive, below the Oakwood apartments he had once lived in. They dumped Yolanda Washington's body beside the road, near a rock pile, and the entrance to the graveyard, across the way from a Warner Brothers set depicting a peaceful, New England Village. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And with that, we come to the end of part six in this series, covering the saga of the Hillside Stranglers. In two weeks, I will bring to you part seven, So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned.